Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. My name is Major Ben Acton, and I am the SO2 Leadership here at the Centre for Army Leadership. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce today's guest, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO, Professor Jamie Shea. Jamie's NATO career spanned an incredible 38 years, during which time he worked his way from Assistant Committee Secretary and Minute Writer all the way to Deputy Assistant Secretary General. He is most famous for his time as the senior spokesperson for NATO during Operation Allied Force, the NATO Kosovo campaign in 1999. Since retiring from NATO in 2018, Jamie has held numerous academic and professional positions, most notably his current role as President of the Centre for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. In 2020, Jamie received formal recognition for his service to diplomacy and public service, being appointed companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George. Professor Jamie Shea, welcome to the podcast. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, how are you keeping in these, in these strange times? Uh, well, I'm obviously looking forward to the return to normality, whatever that means, at least the ability to travel around. Uh, so much of my own sort of activities depend on being able to hop on planes, hop on trains uh, very, very quickly and not have sort of quarantine requirements uh, on both sides of the channel. So I badly need normality to come back. Uh, but, but on the other hand, uh, of course, it's been a, a very interesting period. And uh, for people like me, you know, trying to calculate the strategic consequences of COVID uh, in in the long run has uh, obviously provided a lot of useful additional work. Yeah, I can imagine. I think it's a, it'll be a welcomed end uh, to, for, for everyone. Before we go into into your NATO career and discuss what, what an iconic figure you were within the Alliance, if you don't mind, I'd like to rewind a little bit and, and start at the beginning of, of, sort of your leadership journey and, and give our listeners a bit of a, a personal insight into to who Jamie Shea is. What were your formative years like growing up and what and who shaped you as, as a leader growing up? Well, uh, I, I'm a working class kid, uh, born in uh, North London, grew up educated uh, in uh, North uh, London. Um, and of course, the older I get, the more that North London accent uh, uh, strengthens, uh, at least that's what my wife tells me. Um, formative influences, I suppose when you're a, a young person, uh, you, you obviously have a very narrow circle of uh, friends and experience. So the people who influence you are normally your parents. In this case, it's my mother. Uh, what she did she do? Well, she, she worked um, in central London at a company which had a subscription to The Economist. Um, um, and she realized after a couple of months that uh, nobody was ever bothering to pick it up or read it. So she uh, uh, filched it uh, every week and, and brought it home uh, for me. Uh, and I, of course, uh, read it. And uh, I've had a subscription to The Economist for the last uh, uh, 60 years of my life. So I'm indebted to her, simple gesture, uh, for doing that, which stimulated my interest in, 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 in politics. You know, somebody in that company actually bothered to get value for their subscription and read The Economist himself or herself. Uh, you know, I might never have become interested in politics. The, the other sort of influences are obviously teachers. Um, I uh, always remember uh, two names of my uh, uh, in my primary school when I was you know, barely sort of uh, 10 years uh, old, 12 years old, uh, Miss Kernahan and Miss Coyne. Why do I remember them? Because uh, uh, when Churchill died and was uh, lying in uh, uh, state um, in uh, Westminster Hall, um, they took me one evening to uh, go there. And uh, that, again, gave me a, a very strong interest in Churchill World War II, which would never have happened if those 
those two ladies had not bothered, you know, to take an evening off, uh, to take me and a couple of the other pupils uh, to see Churchill uh, lying in, in state. So sometimes it's little things like that. For example, um, I, I had a German uh, uh, teacher in secondary school who was not a particularly good teacher and I never learned a word of German in his class so I was bored stiff but one thing he did do uh, was run an exchange program uh, with a gymnasium a German high school uh, in Wahlberg north of Frankfurt in Germany and so every year uh, we would have the opportunity to go there to spend several weeks living with a German family um, and following year of course uh, uh, our new chums would come and visit us and uh, through that program I got an abiding interest in Europe, uh, European unification, uh, all things German, the German language. I learned more German in three weeks in Waldberg than I learned in three years in Mr. Pashby's class. So again, Ben, little examples like that. The, the, you, it, it sometimes, you know, the biggest influences on you are not necessarily people who influence you intellectually, but people who either deliberately or accidentally sort of shove you in a, nudge you in a sort of direction uh, that then tends to be uh, decided Late, later on. A final part of this uh, question is that, of course, yes, I mean, when you're young, the influencers tend to be people that you read, because reading gives you uh, access to a much wider circle of people, uh, dead uh, and alive, uh, than you will ever meet in your own uh, life. Um, and there were two historians in particular who had a massive influence on me. One was called R.J. Unstead, probably nobody remembers him. Uh, he did not write serious history books, but he wrote history books for schoolboys like me to about kings and queens but it fired the imagination and stimulated my interest and then later on it was somebody called AJP Taylor very famous Oxford historian who was on TV I mean I, I'm not sure if the BBC would have sort of talking head historians uh, on TV these days but he wrote a whole series of books uh, on 19th to 20th century European history um, and uh, written in uh, very very sort of dramatic language uh, uh, language, which again, really fired up the uh, imagination. And I've devoured all of his books. Later on, I disagreed with his politics, but I must say, uh, at the time, he got me into history. So, you know, you can't really, when you're young, I think, talk about, you know, one particular influence, there's a whole confluence of things, as I said, some intellectual, but maybe the most decisive ones are the most accidental. Uh, absolutely. And, and the majority of our, our guests on here, here, you know, are avid readers and, and the whole the whole sort of paraphrase of readers are leaders is, is absolutely true. And to your point about teachers, uh, it goes to show what a fantastic job they do uh, and how influential they are in, in educating the, the future leaders of, of the country and the world. Fast forward then to September 82. You began your 38-year NATO journey as a, an assistant committee, uh, assistant committee secretary and minute writer. And in those early days, I, I know you covered such interesting subjects as runway tarmac thickness, <laughs> I, know, I know you're very passionate about. So what were those early years like in NATO? And what leadership lessons did you learn then that sort of run true today? Well, yeah, uh, first of all, I joined, just slight uh, a correction there, Ben, I joined in October 1980, so two years uh, earlier. Uh, the Cold War still had nine years to run, of course, before the Berlin Wall came down in November 1989. Well, uh, lessons, I, I suppose the first one is, you know, uh, 
look at the institution, but also look at the job you're going to do. I mean, I was incredibly attracted by NATO, thinking that you know it was in Brussels, uh, it was dealing with defence, it had to be in- incredibly exciting. Uh, but I didn't actually check out the particular job uh, that I'd applied for and was going to do, which was, as you said, to sit on committees and write minutes. And it, uh, it was dreadfully uh, boring. I-, I thought that, you know, basically, as soon as I arrived at NATO, uh, the organisation would recognise my unbelievable potential and put put me immediately in the job of director of nuclear planning policy uh, of course <laughs> they didn't so first lesson is you know the institution is fine but also take a look at, at the job you're going to do I mean, the second lesson in in in, in leadership um, is that sometimes your adversaries are more useful to you than your friends uh, ironically um, I uh, for many years uh, at home had on my wall a, a portrait of Leonid Leonid Brezhnev. Um, you remember Ben, he was the uh, Soviet leader through much of the 60s and 70s, the sort of the personification of, of uh, Soviet paralysis, but also uh, aggressivity because he sent the Soviet forces into Afghanistan in 1979. Uh, and uh, every morning I would get up and I would salute him. Uh, why? Well, because he decided to uh, station uh, Soviet SS-20 missiles. Uh, in the late 70s in central and east uh, in the central uh, and western districts of the Soviet Union threatening uh, NATO and NATO decided to respond uh, in the late 1970s with its own nuclear weapons called Cruz and Pershing and this uh, uh, started a big debate about nuclear deterrence. Um, peace movements uh, appeared on the streets uh, of all of the major NATO cities Paris, London, the Greenham Common Ladies, campaign for nuclear disarmament, we're all familiar with that. And NATO was suddenly in a crisis and decided that it was losing public opinion, losing the uh, support of young people. I don't know if it ever had the support of young people, but there was a perception NATO was losing it. And therefore, they needed somebody to sort of go out there in universities and schools and NGOs and trade unions and even the Catholic Church and make the case for nuclear deterrence. And I got that job and it transformed my life, it transformed my career, Uh, it led to me uh, being uh, much more uh, engaged in everything NATO was doing. Uh, That didn't come from a friend, it came from Brezhnev. Uh, If Brezhnev had not stationed in nuclear weapons, uh, I would never have sort of got away from minute writing. I would have sort of died doing it or or shot myself through sheer boredom and and frustration. So uh, the lesson there is that really, uh, although crises, if you like, tend to be bad for the multitude, for particular individuals like me or you, they can be very good. Crises suddenly shake things up, uh, create new opportunities uh, that individuals, of course, can benefit from uh, in order to uh, um, push their careers forward. I mean, think of Churchill's career if he had, uh, if the Second World War had never broken out uh, uh, and he would never have made it back into politics uh, after the uh, early 1930s. Uh, of course, the Second World War gave us a completely different Winston Churchill, the one we remember today. So, so you know, the, the irony is that your advert Adversaries can be more helpful to you than your friends. Crises are often uh, much more helpful to you in your life than uh, normality. And you just need to sort of, you know, have a little bit of luck sometimes as well as as seize the opportunity. So um, in in a way, uh, I suppose that was what I took from my first couple of years at NATO. Check out the job first and foremost uh, and uh, hope that, uh, you know, the big wave comes along uh, and you can get on your surfboard and exploit it.
to your point about adversaries, uh, Phil Marsh Montgomery famously had a, a picture of Rommel uh, on his on his desktop. So uh, absolutely rings true there. If we could look at your your role as a NATO senior spokesperson, and for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with the inner workings of NATO, would you mind giving us a quick overview of what the NATO senior spokesman is, what role they play within NATO, and and how that role has changed over time? Well, good, good, good question. I mean, the role has changed to the extent that you know NATO now has to communicate more, uh, because uh, if you look at the NATO that I joined in 1980, uh, it had at the time 15 members. Today, it has doubled the number, uh, 30. So, uh, double the number of countries uh, whose public opinion uh, you need to uh, reach. Uh, NATO had no relationship with Russia. Uh, it had no relationship with any foreign country outside its own uh, uh, membership. Uh, uh, the Russian ambassador ambassador was not even allowed into NATO at the time, uh, or the Soviet ambassador. He had to sort of drop off his communications at the site uh, uh, entrance. That's as far as he uh, got. Um, NATO was doing really just one thing, you know, conventional military deterrence. It wasn't doing cyber defense. It wasn't doing space, uh, new technologies, resilience, fighting pandemics, dealing with climate change, all of the things that it's taken on now. Um, and basically, NATO had given up on its opponents. You know, we, we had uh, at the time, a split between the left politically and the right. Uh, the right was anti-communist and tended to be pro-NATO. So NATO basically felt, well, we don't need to communicate because we're never going to convince the left to like us. You know, they, they, they think we're part of American imperialism, so they're never going to love us. So not even worth talking to them. And on the right, well, those guys are convinced anyway. Uh, you know, they're automatically in our camp, so no need to communicate. So, uh, of course, you know, once the Cold War came to an end and the situation was much more fluid, NATO began to realize like any politician today uh, in any political party that you can't take the voters for granted. Sometimes they're with you, sometimes they're against you. They may like you for certain things and hate you for uh, uh, others. Uh, you need to appeal to a much broader uh, audience. Everything is in play. Uh, so NATO has followed that same evolution. So in a nutshell, Ben, um, I, I had to take a, an organisation which uh, didn't, did not know how to communicate, did not believe it was necessary to communicate, and get it into the 20th century, let alone the 21st century, uh, of being able to get its message across uh, in different ways to more diverse uh, audiences, keeping its existing supporters, but winning new supporters as well. Um, that was a big revolution because one of my predecessors as the NATO spokesman, a Portuguese diplomat, uh, his name was uh, Nuno de Campos. I hope he won't mind if he's still alive that I take his name here. But he was known by the media as No News de Campos because when journalists phoned NATO uh, and asked for an opinion or a, uh, a quotation, they were told, no news, no news. And the journalists were the enemies who had to be kept at uh, bay. And, and what I had to do when I took over the job was, of course, uh, make the Alliance realise that journalists were not our enemies. They would write about us, whether we communicated with them or not. And as they were going to write about us, it was definitely a better position to try to influence their positions, their views, get our message across, get our line in, in their particular uh, stories. And so for the very, very first time, a NATO spokesman had a public face uh, that never existed before. Uh, was able to go on the record 
uh, and speak on behalf of the uh, Alliance, was able to give background briefings to journalists every week uh, on what was uh, uh, going uh, uh, on. And, and there was a risk in doing that. You know, of course, the more you communicate, the more you're going to make mistakes. Uh, but the key thing was to convince the NATO leadership that it was worth accepting that mistakes would occur and take that risk for the much greater benefit of actually engaging uh, in debates and getting the message across. Um, I do think, you know, Ben, what I was talking about earlier, this uh, crisis over the INF uh, missiles, you know, the Cruise and Pershing, the SS-20s, uh, helped in that respect uh, because it demonstrated clearly that NATO was in danger of you know, losing uh, large amounts of public opinion on nuclear deterrence and that the Soviet Union was becoming a little bit more adept at propaganda, think Putin today with the fake news and disinformation, uh, and therefore could put NATO on on the defensive. So in a way, you know, talking about your topic about leadership, it's a conjunction of the opportunity, you know, suddenly things have changed, the pressure is there, the situation is different, there's a new challenge that you have to face up to. And leadership, you, you need leaders who actually recognise that, uh, uh, you know, don't deny reality and recognise the need for change and are willing to sort of take a punt on somebody like me uh, and take a risk uh, and turn the uh, communication uh, machine uh, uh, around. But a final point here, obviously I could talk about this at much greater length, but final point here is that it doesn't necessarily mean that once things change, they change in a new direction forever. Um, I, I was a very visible NATO spokesperson. My personality obviously has to have something to do with it. Uh, love it or hate it. Um, you can only be yourself. But we had, a, 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 and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a moment, big crises in the alliance. You know, the Pershing and cruise missile crisis, the fall of the Berlin Wall and whether NATO would survive. Then, of course, the interventions in, the U in Yugoslavia. And when you're in a crisis, you have to communicate. You know, the TV cameras are there. You can't run away. So I was lucky in a way in, in the sense that I was spokesman at a time when those big existential crises for NATO occurred. But when I left, uh, my uh, followers, uh, my sort of successors, if you like, uh, didn't, I think, have quite the same profile as I had because the crisis years had passed. Um, maybe also uh, the secretary generals themselves did more of the communicating. So, you know, you, you don't, because you have a visible spokesperson one minute, it doesn't mean to say that everybody thereafter is going to be uh, equally visible. If things quieten down, uh, then they're there doing their job, uh, but the cameras aren't sort of chasing them around the car park in the way that they were chasing me. Now, at the beginning of, you, of your answer there, you, you spoke about the, as one would expect, the multinational nature of NATO. And as you know, as the military, we will more than likely uh, be part of a multinational force in the future. It will probably be joint cross-governmental in any operation that we deploy uh, around the world. Now, this, of course, brings with it challenges and frictions. Every organisation has, has its own way of doing things, has its own culture, has its own language and jargon that, that they use. Now, by its very design, and you'll have seen this firsthand, NATO as an organisation probably are really comfortable uh, in this space of, of dealing with that sort of diversity. So from your time there, how did leaders bring the sort of multinational political and military dimensions together? And, and what can the army learn as an organisation about this process? 
Well, yes, I mean, that, that's a, a really, really good and fundamental question, particularly where NATO is concerned. Well, I mean, I think the first point is that obviously multinationality is not always the optimal military solution. Uh, you have problems of interoperability. Uh, I remember General David Richards, uh, of course, a well-known UK commander uh, who commanded the ISAF mission in Afghanistan, complaining bitterly that he had 30 telephones on his desk because all of the allies deploying in Afghanistan uh, had different communication systems, uh, and uh, therefore they needed you know, obviously different networks and how frustrating uh, and time-consuming that could be. Eventually, it was all sorted out when NATO created the so-called Federated Communication and Administration uh, Network, but it, it, it took time. Uh, Napoleon famously said, Lord, if I fight, uh, I hope it will be against a coalition, um, because, you know, Napoleon had tremendous success, at least for a while, uh, in breaking up six coalitions that were against him. He was less successful with Wellington and the Seventh coalition, of course. We all know where that uh, ended. But if you're dealing with sort of multinational military operations, yes, you are going to, in terms of interoperability, in terms of rules of engagement, pay a price. For example, in Afghanistan, we had something called caveats, which you're familiar with, of course, in the army, Ben, where you know, uh, allies would send uh, forces off to Afghanistan, putting all kinds of limitations on them. Uh, you know, they couldn't go outside a certain area. They couldn't go out at night. They could only go around in certain number of vehicles. And, and you know, for commanders who wanted flexibility in being able to move their forces around according to where the Taliban were posing threats, uh, you know, those, those uh, uh, caveats could be uh, very uh, debilitating. I, I remember uh, the Polish foreign minister at the time, my good friend Radek Sikorski, uh, who arrived at a NATO meeting to announce that he was offering 1,000 Polish troops to ISAF and saying they're not with no caveats. And he who gives without caveats, Sikorsky said, gives twice. In other words, the troops are doubly useful uh, because they don't have those restrictions. So I, I'm the first person to acknowledge that you know, despite NATO's 73 years of existence, there are issues of interoperability, of common doctrine, of rules of engagement, of risk-taking, apart from, you know, the digital transformation and the ease of using modern technology uh, uh, that, that we've never quite as an alliance uh, resolved. But, and this is the, the hub, rub of your question, uh, there are enormous political benefits uh, of multinationality, which to some degree compensate for the military disadvantages and which sometimes you know, the political leadership of NATO just has to ask the military leadership to put up with and support because of the wider strategic picture. It's legitimacy. You know, the more you go, the more you are seen as representing not, you know, one country's uh, narrow self-interest, but the international community. It's much easier to get a UN mandate if you're operating as part of a coalition. That's why, you know, uh, in the Gulf War in 2003, although uh, uh, at the time the US was only supported by Tony Blair, George W. Bush always spoke of the coalition, the coalition, as if it was some big sort of rainbow alliance of 50 countries like during the first Gulf War, because he knew that that language implied a sense of uh, legitimacy. It's good for deterrence, because ultimately, you know, Russia uh, probably knows that it could overwhelm rather quickly the 5,000 NATO troops uh, in the Baltic states of Poland these days, you know, the enhanced forward presence, particularly given that Russia has 440,000 troops on its side of the border. But Russia also knows that there are 23 allied countries uh, in that formation, and that therefore, if he attacks the Baltic states, he's attacking NATO uh, and the Americans, and it means 
means, therefore, the whole engagement of the alliance. So, uh, you know, multinationality gives NATO there uh, a deterrence advantage, which in, in strict military terms, if you looked at the, you know, the net assessment, the balance for forces, it, it wouldn't have. Um, uh, it means you can bring partners in and use the coalitions to train those partners up, Georgia, Ukraine, to NATO standards and prepare their future uh, entry uh, into uh, the alliance uh, as, as, as well. It gives you access to certain uh, uh, core capabilities that certain allies uh, or partners have. For example, the Czechs, very small country, but would provide essential CBRN uh, defence. Uh, I could give you know, multiple examples of this. So, so there's a balance you know, between in any operation between the political factors uh, and the military factors. Uh, and it can mean that sometimes, yes, uh, the political uh, advantages can outweigh the military disadvantages. But if that's part of your strategy, that's all in a, a, a good cause. Now, you already touched on it, touched on the next question uh, in your previous answer. But how do political leaders who represent the 30 different nations that you alluded to, with often diverging interests and strategic goals, come together and create a shared vision and common strategic assessment? And I think this is this has been sort of true through time, post-World War II. There's always going to be that individual, uh, individualised agenda for countries to look at. So how, 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 does, it, how does that work out? The, again, a, a really good question. Uh, well, you, know, you start from the premise that nobody wants NATO to fail. Because if NATO fails, their security fails. You remember Benjamin Franklin's famous line about either we all hang together or assuredly we're all going to hang separately. Uh, that, that's really, if you like, the, the principle of NATO. Uh, so, you know, countries are quite happy to sort of fight their position to the end. You know, a NATO ambassador doesn't want to sort of give the impression to Paris or Berlin or London that he or she has caved in, you know, has not been able to sort of fight the national position, has not put up a good show or a good defence. So there's a kind of ritual at NATO. You know, it's like an old marriage that's been going on for 73 years and certain sort of habits have been formed, a certain sort of lexicon that everybody identifies and plays according to. And that is that at the beginning, uh, and I chaired numerous NATO meetings in my career, you know, you have the first meeting about a new cyber defence policy or, you know, we're going to link uh, uh, Article 5 to uh, cyber attacks or, uh, and, you know, you have your first tour de table, as it's called, you know, the first round of the 30, and they all come up with their national positions and you think, oh my God, hell, I'm never going to ever, be, you know, be able to find a consensus for, for these guys. They're all over the show, you know. Um, uh, 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 but you recognise that as the work goes on and as the deadline approaches, you know, a NATO summit, a policy has to be agreed, a communique has to be written. Gradually, you know, you see them all start, you know, putting a bit of water in their wine, getting a bit more uh, flexible. They know at the end they're going to have to compromise. Of course, what they want to do is have a compromise which reflects as much as their national position uh, as they can so that they can go back to Paris or London or Washington and say, look, you know, Mr. President, at least I got 50% of what you wanted me to get. You know, I didn't sort of, you know, cave in entirely. So, you know, at the end, there's going to be a, a compromise because uh, at the end of the 
day, as I said, if NATO fails, uh, it's a danger for them. So uh, essentially, NATO works because no matter how bad the dispute, and believe me, I've I've seen some really big fights, really big fights in NATO, when even I thought the alliance might fall apart. But but at the end of the day, everybody puts NATO before any other interest. They 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 give in. Uh, they want unity. Uh, and one of the greatest examples that I can remember the most dramatic certainly occurred in 1994 uh, when NATO uh, we were all over the place at loggerheads over Bosnia you know to intervene or not to intervene to launch airstrikes uh, to break the relationship with the United Nations with the UN UNPRO for UN peacekeeping uh, operation uh, on the on the ground uh, and the Americans who wanted to bomb from the air were in a totally different position to the European allies like the UK, you know, who were invested in the ground operations in UNPRO for, uh, and thought that if the Americans started bombing, the Serbs would simply round up and uh, uh, and kill uh, NATO soldiers in reprisals. Um, and Warren Christopher, uh, the US Secretary of State under the Clinton administration, came to a very, very dramatic NATO meeting and said, okay, NATO is more important than Bosnia. Those words resonate every day with me. NATO is more important than Bosnia. In other words, we deeply disagree with this European policy, but we recognize that the damage that it's doing to the NATO alliance uh, outweighs uh, the intrinsic merits of the policy. So basically, we are now going to commit to a ground uh, force uh, in Bosnia as part of a peacekeeping uh, operation, as part of a political agreement, and we're going to give up the notion of unilateral American airstrikes or lifting arms embargoes. And, and on that basis, NATO was able to go forward successfully, as you know, the following year uh, with a, a, a NATO air operation, which led to the Dayton Peace Agreement. So at the end of the day, Ben, you, you, there are two aspects. So there's the kind of procedural aspect. I chaired NATO committees. You need skillful chair people who you know bat, know where the consensus is, who do trade-offs. I mean, I spent a lot of time going to have you know glasses of whiskey uh, on late afternoons with NATO uh, ambassador saying, Mr. Ambassador, look, you know, uh, will you basically change your position to do that? Because it will help me get consensus. But I make you a promise, Mr. Ambassador, even a secret promise that if you compromise on this, when we get to the next issue, I will support you as chairperson and compensate you. You, you, do, you do deals, you negotiate. If you can't do deals, you can't run NATO. You have to see where the consensus is going to lie. But then you also rely on this political momentum that at the end of the day, no country wants to be the black sheep. No country wants to be isolated, you know, the, the bad guy who's preventing everybody else from going forward. Some Compromise means you don't get everything you want, but you live to fight another day and you keep the basic uh, principle. And, and basically it, it, it works pretty well, I, I have to say. You know, the advantage of the system is it gives everybody a chance to speak out, to, to basically, you know, express their opinion. Uh, they can't be rolled over because of the consensus rule. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, you, as I said, uh, everybody knows that they're going to have to end up agreeing. And the fact that they have in their mind at the beginning, the fact that, well, sooner or later, I'm going to have to sort of uh, agree uh, helps considerably uh, in, in that respect. Uh, of course, you know, the big question today, and I'll stop on this because I'm giving you quite a long answer here, but that it's because everybody you know wants to preserve NATO and, uh, 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 you know, 
basically follows democratic uh, principles and democratic values. If you had a number of NATO allies that turned their backs on democracy and became you know, Putin-esque uh, or Chinese type of authoritarian type uh, systems, would that spirit still work? I think the question is there. It's fascinating stuff and, and you know, it's, a, it's a complex web of decisions that fundamentally shape the course of histories. Now, obviously, NATO, by its very nature, offers collective defence primarily through, through deterrence. But at, at times, as we've seen in recent decades, this deterrence transitions into sort of military action. So what then happens when NATO deploys multinational forces into a theatre of operations with that balance of civilian and military action arguably changes and that dynamic between the two um, shifts? What's your experience of this happening and, and what impact does this rebalancing have within, within a headquarters? Yeah, again, that, that's, that's a, a very, very, very good question. Um, I, I think the first thing, obviously, is to make sure that you know what you're getting into uh, and uh, to the extent you can, you have a peace agreement that the sides have sort of signed up to. I mean, in the Balkans, I think the great advantage was that we had those agreements, um, uh, the military technical agreement with Serbia for Kosovo and, of course, the Dayton police, uh, peace agreement for Bosnia with the so-called silver bullet clause that gave you know the NATO commanders uh, the ability to basically take all of the decisions control the airspace you know disarm the various uh, factions uh, you know there were hundreds of pages where the obligations of the parties to demobilize disarm place their weapons in containments you know create the zos in bosnia the zone of separation of 10 kilometers between the two sides. All of that was agreed. So it made the job of the NATO commanders comparatively easy because they had those plenty potentiary powers. Uh, Afghanistan was a uh, was different right from the get-go. Uh, the Taliban never signed up uh, to any peace uh, 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 agreement. The particular responsibilities of the NATO forces, apart from going there and trying to dampen down the violence, were never particularly felt uh, out. And I think we've lived with those consequences ever since. So I think the first lesson is the diplomats have to do their job and make it easier for the military uh, by getting you know these very clear uh, agreements in advance, which spell out the uh, attributions and responsibilities. That's the first thing. The, the second big problem is that once the military deploy, they tend to do a pretty good job. So um, they, they spread out over the countryside. I mean, they're, they're professional, they're well organized, they you know take the equipment in, uh, lots of tanks and lots of aircraft, which sometimes frighten, uh, quite rightly, uh, the belligerents uh, in terms of, you know, don't dare going back to fighting because we'll be able to snuff this out uh, very quickly. They're super well uh, all, all organized. But, but two things happen, which I think are slightly more uh, problematic and not the fault of the military. Number one, they also create uh, an organized structure uh, because they are well organized. Uh, you know, they have planning headquarters, they have intelligence, they have communications, they have logistics, they have helicopters that can fly people around the country quickly. They have medical units. And so very quickly, the civilian side comes to rely overwhelmingly on the military to deliver those kind of basic nation building services, like provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan. So the civilian community is sort of demobilized. Um, I, I've, been, I've for example, in Afghanistan, during the years of Afghanistan and ISAF, I was in meetings with the UN where they said, well, we don't need to do anything. You guys are taking care of it all uh, down there. You know, we can focus on 
other areas. I mean, I was in a meeting with Ban Ki-moon, who remember the Secretary General, the South Korean Secretary General of the UN, where he spoke about all of his problems, you know, Mozambique, the Sahel, Somalia, uh, didn't mention Afghanistan once, uh, uh, even though the UN did have an office there. And, and so the first problem is that, you know, the, the military inevitably creep the mission because everybody comes to sort of rely upon the basic services that they can uh, uh, supply. And that, unfortunately, in Afghanistan uh, has led to a, a demobilization of, of the important civilian uh, effort, which is required, you know, in development, in political institution building, education, and all of those uh, 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 fields. And then, of course, the military, unfortunately, takes the blame for not being perfect at doing things that it never set out to do in the first place. Um, the second big problem is that once the military are there and the situation is stabilised, we get into the Cyprus syndrome. Uh, you know, the UN has been in Cyprus since 1963, and then again after 1974. A green line is drawn between northern and, Cy uh, and, and, and southern Cyprus, and everybody forgets about the problem, and it festers and it festers and it festers. Uh, even today, Cyprus is back in the news uh, with the visit of Erdogan uh, to northern Cyprus. In other words, the, the, the diplomats stop looking for a political solution. There's no urgency. Nobody's getting killed any longer. It's off the TV screens. They have other problems to worry about. And we stop doing the politics. Uh, and therefore, the military get into a comfortable but ultimately frustrating situation of being there day after day after day when they don't really have anything to do any longer except to be there uh, simply to demonstrate a kind of presence. But where the situation becomes totally deadlocked. I mean, look at this week. We had, um, you know, Kosovo... Let me backtrack a moment. Kosovo um, has had NATO forces since 1999, far longer than Afghanistan. Um, and they're going to be there far for much longer than after the forces withdraw from Afghanistan over the next uh, a, a couple of weeks. But you could argue that their essential mission stopped after the first six months. Uh, why are they still there? Because the, the diplomats, the political machinery, has simply not been able to get the Serbs and the Kosovo Albanians around the table uh, to talk about power sharing, to talk about decentralization, to talk about economic relations, to talk about recognition. There was a meeting in Brussels this week, just this week, uh, between um, uh, Alexander Vucic, the Serb uh, uh, president uh, and uh, Albin Kurti, the new Albanian prime minister, just as cantankerous, just as non-productive as meetings 20 years ago, uh, still very divided on all of the key uh, issues. So the lesson, I think, is number one, the mission creep idea, the demobilizing the civilians. And the second thing is, unfortunately, you know, the, the politicians don't realize that, you know, because the military have sort of put a lid on things, uh, all of the fundamental problems are still there festering and they require urgent uh, attention and we forget to do the politics. Uh, and then there's no exit strategy or where there is an exit strategy, like in Afghanistan at the moment, it's an exit strategy, which I say this with great regret, is tinged with frustration, failure, and a feeling of considerable waste of life and resources uh, that doesn't leave anybody feeling that the fundamental threat is, is going to go away. It's absolutely fascinating. And in danger of uh, quoting Clausewitz too much, that yeah, his his old, his famous quote of war is extension of politics, but to politics it must return, which is often missed off, is absolutely uh, rings true there, and it is that joint approach in any operation that we do in the future is fundamental. 
And no, noting, noting your points there on, uh, on the Balkans, can we talk specifically about your experience in, in Kosovo uh, on, on Operation Allied, Allied Force, which you've, you've become synonymous with, which, are, as I understand, has led to you being a bit of a national hero in Pristina. I'm sure you don't have to pay for a coffee whenever you visit there. <laughs> uh, right. And at the time of the crisis, NATO had uh, only 16 members and, and you were in the process of admitting three. So a fairly busy time for the Alliance with a, with a lot of strategic change going on. So as, as Director of Information and Press and as the spokesperson as you were at the time, what leadership challenges were there bringing together such different views, priorities and concerns during a, a period of institutional change and, and fundamentally in crisis? Yeah, uh, again, really good question. Well, I mean, nobody likes wars, let's be frank. Uh, you can't expect wars to be popular with public opinion. Uh, they're, they cause great uncertainty. Uh, nobody knows if you're going to be successful. Uh, you get the inevitable problems of conflict the moment you start. You remember Napoleon, no plan survives the first contact with the enemy. You know, in NATO, uh, we felt we had uh, a good cause. Uh, obviously, you know, stopping genocide, stopping mass human rights uh, violations. We felt that everybody uh, recognized the threat posed by Milosevic. He demonstrated that in Bosnia and in the, in the wars of Yugoslavia. But having a good cause doesn't carry you through if you're not brilliant in execution. Um, and I suppose in NATO, we felt that because, you know, our cause was just, the public would turn a blind eye when we hit the wrong target, you know, bombed the Serb TV building, bombed the Chinese embassy, uh, bombed, uh, you know, civilian train on a bridge, you know, bombed a tractor convoy at Jakovica, and we had all of these incidents at collateral damage. And of course, you know, the first wake-up call was no, <laughs> you know, journalists uh, uh, don't give you a free pass on execution and on implementation just because you have uh, a uh, noble uh, cause. Uh, that's the first thing. Um, the, the, the second thing is that you have, uh, and I, I referred to this earlier, Ben, uh, strange coalitions forming. I, I mentioned that when I joined NATO, the political left did not particularly like the alliance because it felt that it was a sort of an adjunct of American imperialism. And it was the right, uh, the more nationalist right, anti-communist right, that liked NATO. Kosovo, the roles were reversed. The left, you know, think of people like Joska Fischer, the Green uh, Party German foreign minister, suddenly liked NATO because we were uh, basically standing up for human rights uh, and, and stopping genocide and stopping mass expulsions. And But the right felt, wait, wait a minute, you know, NATO, that's about conventional defence against Russia in Europe. What the heck are you guys doing intervening in another country and violating its sovereignty? So the coalitions changed and suddenly the people you didn't expect to support you were supporting you and vice versa. And that meant you had to pay a lot of attention to media strategy. There were also countries that were particularly important for the success of the operation, but where public opinion was pretty uh, pretty sort of fragile, pretty weak. Think of Greece, um, you know, fundamental for deploying NATO forces to go into Kosovo once the campaign finished. But the Greeks, with their traditional you know, Greek Orthodox ties with the Serbs, uh, were violently opposed uh, to the NATO air campaign. We had important bases in Italy, but again, it, Italian public opinion didn't like what was going on. So you had to pay particular attention to certain NATO audiences. It, there wasn't a one-size-fits-all. Uh, 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 and the problem also is that you know suddenly you know you can have a massive reverse. I mean, I, I will never ever forget going to bed one night feeling fairly happy about things. You know, finally after many months of frustration about what was called collateral damage, you know, the, the incidents, the civilian casualties, uh, the length of the air campaign, you know, we also gave people the wrong 
the impression that it would all be 48 hours. And we were, if you like, we shot ourselves in, in our own feet in, uh, because we should never have conveyed this kind of impression that, oh, you know, the technology is going to work fantastically. Every bomb's going to hit the target. Look at all these fancy videos, you know, showing these brilliant strikes. Nobody's getting killed, ladies and gentlemen. And Milosevic is going to throw in the towel. I mean, one lesson is don't create unrealist expectations that are going to haunt you uh, thereafter. But that particular evening, Ben, I, I went to bed feeling, you know, fairly happy after some bad weeks. I felt we were getting on the front foot. You know, we were winning the battle of the hearts and minds. The media operation was going more successfully. And then at two o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call uh, from uh, one of my uh, 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 team saying, Jamie, turn on the TV. You won't believe what you're going to see. And I turned on the TV, CNN, showing the Chinese embassy burning in Belgrade. And suddenly there's this feeling that, you know, like in the myth of Syphysis, Ben, you remember when Syphysis rolls the stone to the top of the mountain and suddenly it rolls all the way back down. Oh my God, how could we possibly do this? It's back to square one. You know, we're back on the back foot. So, you know, you, you have to have this kind of basic resilience, frankly, that the situation is totally beyond your, or largely beyond your control. You know, uh, you're going to have successes which are immediately contradicted by failures. You're going to have to sort of pick the whole thing up. And it's really just a question of keeping going uh, with the, you know, the communication strategy in the hope that you guys in the military are going to be able to pull off the military success, which alone, which alone uh, can make the narrative uh, seem authentic uh, and true. You know, remember Abraham Lincoln, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and you can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. So, you know, I, well, Kosovo taught me a lesson that media strategies are really all about winning time, a space, a public tolerance. Okay, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Okay, we'll believe what you're doing, but not indefinitely. You know, if you can't deliver the results after a period of time, then we're not going to believe what you're telling us uh, any longer. At the start of your answer there, Jamie, you mentioned about persuasion and you were in a really unique situation uh, as the spokesperson at the time, as you were contributing significantly to the debate on how the alliance was perceived by the by the public and equally by the political and military leaders of each of those countries within the alliance. You you were fundamentally the shop window of NATO. Yet interestingly, you did so without having a, a position of authority. You didn't have any powers of your own. You could you could only really represent the views that that you were pre-agreed by the Allies. Now, this is re a really interesting concept for us, as, as we in the army ha have that sort of trilogy of command, leadership and management, with command giving an individual that delegated authority. In military jargon, we would say that you were having to lead without any authority. What can we learn from that experience about uh, leading without authority? That's a, again, the questions are really good and they're getting harder. You know, this is sort of a, sort of a progressive <laughs> you well, know, pilgrim's you progress uh, of, of more difficult challenge. No, but the, the, the questions are, uh, are totally uh, the ones that I would ask myself, Ben. Um, I, look, I think the first thing is that in a crisis, there is a certain amount of flying by the seat of your pants. You don't have all of the information. You know, you mentioned Clausewitz and the fog of war, of course, is, is, is there. People are not lying, but, you know, they get the facts wrong. Uh, uh, we know uh, people want to believe certain things because they're so desperate for belief. And so they clutch at straws of, you know, miraculous airstrikes, sometimes where the evidence uh, isn't uh, really there. 
there. So you've got to be very, very careful that you don't allow people, even for good intentions, to mislead you in terms of what is true and what is not. You have to depend on your own judgment, on your own hunch. Uh, you take risks, uh, uh, of course. I, I knew very well that uh, when I was communicating for some allies, I wasn't robust enough. Uh, I had a call one day from Sandy Berger, uh, you may not remember him. He was the national security advisor uh, in the Clinton administration who told me, uh, stop effing, I apologize for this, but this was a quotation, stop effing apologizing because he felt that I was being, you know, sort of too you know, lily-livered and weak in terms of expressing remorse for the civilian casualties that uh, the accidents were causing. Uh, but on the other hand, I was also called in by Javier Solana uh, who was the secretary general and my boss and told that, you know, for the Greeks and the Italians and many others, I was coming across as to, you know, swinging from the branches uh, type thing. So yeah, I realized that there's no way that you can you know, be all things to all people. You've got your style, you've got your way of doing it. If they didn't think I was doing the right job, then they should fire me and, re and remove me. You just accept those kind of risks, frankly, you go out on a limb and you just hope that, you know, at the end of the day, you you get it about right. Um, it's very important to have bosses who cover you. You know, the worst thing that any spokesperson can have uh, is a boss who is willing, you know, to stab him or her in the back or drop you like a stone the minute things go wrong. Um, you know, there's a part, uh, a passage in the, uh, the autobiography of Marlin Fitzwater who was the spokesperson of President uh, George H.W. Bush, where he calls Gorbachev in a press conference a drugstore cowboy, which is a big mistake, um, and uh, uh, immediately creates a press storm. And George H.W. Bush calls Fitzwater in, and Fitzwater says, I was expecting the president to fire me. And the president looks at him and said, Marlin, don't do that again. Issue closed. Move on. The mistake was learned from. Uh, but the boss covered the spokesperson and dimply sits dimp and so you need a boss who basically has confidence in you and it's going to cover you because you know in in a crisis things are going to go wrong but when you talk about political authority the one thing is to get a team around you that do give you that authority uh, i was massively helped uh, during the kosovo crisis and, and ben this is a well-known story by the fact that tony blair sent me alistair campbell over uh, who sorted me out <laughs> quite quickly when it came to you know, organization and a better structure and better support. Clinton sent over uh, some excellent people like P.J. Crowley, who, who became quite a well-known figure uh, in American diplomacy. Uh, afterwards, I had people from Germany, people I'm still in contact with today who represented their national governments. And this meant that there was better coordination. Uh, we were more in line with what people in, in Berlin, with what you know George Robertson as the defense secretary in the, U in the UK was saying, uh, we, we could coordinate better. And I felt then that I was on much more solid ground Ground than I have been at the uh, at the beginning. So you know you you're right. There is this gap between responsibility and authority, but it doesn't mean to say that you're uh, you're a victim or defenseless. You've got to try to get around you sort of people who give you a plug into that authority, so that at least you know where things stand and you can orient yourself uh, accordingly. Absolutely, and you made a really interesting point at, at the beginning there about decision making and some of the work that we've done recently on leading through crisis based on the, the, the COVID pandemic uh, really shows that, that leaders have to be comfortable with making decisions with, with not all the, all the information. I think that's going to ring true in the future, being comfortable with making, making those decisions with imperfect information. 
Um, now, if I could stay on communication for one moment, and in particular, the, the importance of messaging as a strategic leader that you, that you touched on there. There are a lot of column inches on the great relationships you have fostered with the world's press, particularly in Kosovo, but, but equally throughout your career, with, um, with numerous journalists describing you as honest, genuine, and transparent, which, which is clearly a testament, uh, to testament to how successful you've been throughout your career. Now, would you mind telling us about um, how you've built up these relationships and, and tell us how you were so successful in gaining, uh, and most importantly, maintaining their trust? Well, thanks again. Well, first of all, I like journalists and I admire them. And in my second life, I'd like to come back as a journalist and uh, without, you know, going beyond your question, Ben, to talk about today's environment of, you know, questioning the press, uh, even calling them the enemy of the people in many countries who are killing journalists, uh, uh, making life very difficult for them, imprisoning them, uh, as, as we know, uh, and, and all of the pressures on the traditional media that come from social media. I, I believe that the, 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 the job of journalist has never been more important to the health of democracy. Uh, but that's a different debate, I know. But but I've always liked journalists. I like their irreverence. Uh, I like the insights. I like the reality check, you know, that they give you because all of us in our bureaucracies become a little bit complacent, self-satisfied. We think we know best. Uh, you know, we, we tend to have groupthink in terms of confirming uh, each other's views. We conform to the party line, don't we? Because we think that's the best way to get on. So hanging around journalists is, is, is a great uh, lesson in self-humility and in questioning uh, some of your own judgments and realizing all of the things that you don't know when you think that you know a lot. So I've, I've always enjoyed their company. And one thing that I did when I was spokesman during normal times was that you know I invited them for lunch. Uh, or if they invited me to lunch, I went and uh, I briefed them on background. I learned who I could trust but also who I couldn't trust, particularly when it came, you know, to protecting your identity, accurate quoting, uh, and uh, all of that. I tried to help them, um, you know, get the stories because my view, again, was that whether I talked to them or not, um, you know, they're, they're going to write about NATO. I mean, Bob Woodward, you know, the chap who writes all of the, the former Washington Post correspondent who writes all of the great books on American presidencies, he has a simple technique. He'll phone up a very senior person and he says, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write a, a book on X and I'm going to talk about your role and you can either talk to me and give me your version in the hope that I will reflect it or you can refuse to talk to me and I therefore I'm going to just going to write the way I see it and everyone thinks oh my god no I'm going to talk to Bob Woodward because I you know uh, he's going to write about me anyway and therefore uh, I can't take the risk that he won't see you know oh, you know my side of the story he's going to blame me you know for what went wrong with that scandal when I was completely innocent. So it, it, so you learn that very, very quickly. You know, when, when I saw, read a, a piece on NATO, which was high, heavily critical on NATO, I didn't mind if two things happened. Number one, the journalist had got his facts right. What, the one thing I couldn't bear was a journalist who wrote critical articles on NATO based on wrong information, wrong facts. I thought, my God, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure that at least the facts are correct. You know, there was an American judge, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said everybody's entitled to his own opinions, but everybody is not entitled to his own facts. The second thing was that even if the piece was critical, at least I would have my side of the story reflected you know there would be a, a bit of the article which would said and uh, the nato spokesman jamie shea when consulted said blah 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 and then you know even if the piece was critical i would be happy because proper journalistic standards have been reflected so the answer to your question ben is invest in people during quiet times 
build relationships. You know, you can't surge uh, a relationship in a crisis. You can't invent procedures uh, in, in a crisis when the pressures are on. You have to do this. You know, you build your uh, your uh, arc uh, before it starts raining. Right. That's the universal uh, lesson. And, and uh, let me just illustrate this with a story. You know, during the Kosovo uh, crisis, I was under a lot of pressure. You know, the, the briefings I was given giving weren't always good, uh, mainly because I found it so difficult to get accurate, reliable information, which is what the media uh, were looking for. And one day, well, one of my journalist colleagues, Craig Whitney of the New York Times, came into my office and said, Jamie, look, I've, I've covered Vietnam, I've covered you know, all kinds of conflicts, uh, and your NATO briefings are the worst that I've ever uh, uh, attended. And this really stung, it really hurt. But he said, Jamie, but I know it's not your fault, because you and I have been working together for 10 years. Uh, you've been helpful to me. And I know that you know, you're doing your best to uh, help the press write the story. So basically, I'm going to write a critical piece, but I'm going to give you half of my article, Jamie, because I know you, because I trust you, to give you your your side of the story. And the story came out in the New York Times. Uh, and yeah, it stung, it hurt, it was highly critical. But at least this journalist had been fair to me by warning me in advance, not taking me by surprise, and giving me a chance to at least reflect my particular view. Uh, and that piece really did help, you know, to persuade Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and others that I needed a bit of support and a bit of help. So although it was hurtful at the time, because, you know, I worked with this journalist, it actually helped me in the long run by mobilizing the resources and the support that I badly needed. So the answer to you is that, you know, the more you use, you know, uh, normal circumstances to build these relationships, to make these investments, you know, to establish good rules of the road, uh, the more it's going to help you in times of stress to come through safely. Jamie, we, we we absolutely echo your your, your views there. Uh, trust is the glue that binds, as you as you can imagine, in, in our business and and in our experience and, and all the work we do here. It's all about that human connection. It's about knowing your people, and it's about building those those human interactions that that in time build trust. So we we absolutely echo your point there. If I could change track for one moment and move on to your experience of supporting uh, the Secretary General. Now, thinking of the NATO Secretary General as a leader, I think you would agree that. Uh, he or she does not have any powers of their own. Instead, they they represent the will of the Allies, as we sort of touched on earlier. Yeah, historical precedent shows that at critical junctions, uh, the Secretary General does play a pivotal role in, in leading the Alliance. Now, the, the obvious examples of this are uh, Manfred Werner and, and Lord Robinson, as, as those sort of point in recent history. Now, how do leaders with such little authority have such a strong impact on the international stage and in geopolitics? And, and how do you lead through di diplomacy at the strategic level? Again, a, a, a really brilliant question. Well, you know, the, the, the first thing is, is leaders have to be prepared to take risks. Uh, you know, leadership is often about you know, persuading people uh, to take a course of action that they're not comfortable with, doesn't sort of come easily. Uh, where uh, they see also risks themselves, um, breaking the status quo, uh, that, that's difficult uh, uh, to do. Uh, and to some degree, leaders, as I said earlier, you know, have to sort of also wait sometimes for, you know, for circumstances, the wind, if you like, to start blowing in their direction before they can really make the argument. I mean, you think of Churchill who was warning about Hitler um, from 1935 with almost nobody listening because they didn't perceive immediately uh, the impact on them of his aggressive behavior. Uh, by 1937, 1938, uh, obviously, 
there was so much more evidence of Hitler's uh, aggression and his designs that you know, Churchill's arguments started to resonate with more and more uh, people, uh, uh, even his critics who could see that ultimately he was on the right side of the uh, uh, argument. So leadership often is about you know, being in the wilderness for a while uh, and being able to get through that before finally, you know, as I said, the opportunity, that context comes uh, along. But it is um, uh, lonely in, in that sense of having to make sometimes unpopular uh, arguments. Um, and it requires a certain degree of consistency, but it also requires uh, building uh, alliances. I mean, what the Secretary General of NATO, uh, you, know, you mentioned, I think the two best ones uh, in my experience, Manfred Werner and George Robertson, not that the others have been bad, uh, I, I, all the people I worked for uh, had enormous qualities, but I think in terms of leadership, those two have been the most uh, de decisive. They were both uh, uh, risk takers, they both had, you know, their basic sort of messages, and they both exploited opportunities. I mean, I think, you know, Werner's uh, great uh, 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 role was that he was able basically to change himself. I mean, sometimes to be a, a, a great leader, you, you have to also be able to escape from your past and redefine yourself. I mean, Werner had been a not particularly successful German defense minister who had come to Brussels to be the NATO Secretary General following a scandal uh, in, in which he fired the, the chief of the German army who was allegedly involved at the time in a sex scandal. So he left Bonn, the German capital at the time, under something of a cloud. But when he came to, to, to NATO, away from German politics, he suddenly, you know, recognized an entirely new environment, a, a new role for himself as Secretary General. Uh, he went from being a cold warrior to a person who wanted to uh, enlarge NATO to the east. You know, uh, he was a cold warrior who was the first NATO Secretary General to meet Soviet leaders, to go to Red Square, uh, to go to the Kremlin. I, I went with him to recognize that times had changed. And, and uh, instead of confronting the east, the future of NATO would, would lie in engaging so uh, a, a good leader is somebody who, who who sometimes you know can can recognize that he has to change or she has to change who also recognizes that the world has changed who's willing to accept that and and, and move on uh, in, in that re respect george robertson um to my mind will always be uh, a, 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 an unsung hero because i don't think he get, he got the credit for it that he really deserves uh because he uh intervened uh, politically in uh macedonia north macedonia as we call it now uh, back in 2001 uh to persuade uh, the uh, albanians in in macedonia and the uh, slav macedonians who were about you know to fight each other in the way that the parties had fought in bosnia and, and kosovo not to do it and instead to go to the negotiation table uh, and to sign the Ocarid Peace Agreement, which has held. It's been one of those peace agreements which really has held uh, and was the basis of North Macedonia last year, finally being able to join uh, NATO. But because uh, Robertson uh, stopped a conflict that never broke out, he hasn't quite got the recognition that sometimes people get in terms of the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for uh, stopping conflicts you know, like in the Middle East that have been going on or in Syria uh, for decades uh, and, 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 and decades. Or, or Northern Ireland or, or, or whatever. But I certainly think that George Robertson uh, uh, deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe have Javier Solana uh, too, because Javier Solana 
uh, the former NATO Secretary General, was his counterpart uh, in the EU. And they worked as a kind of good cop, bad cop team. You know, Robertson threatening NATO military action, Solana, you know, dangling the, the carrots of EU financial assistance. They worked as a team on both sides, you know, to, to get them to stop fighting, to you know, lay down their weapons, come to the peace table. It was a great example of what everybody's always talking about on the academic conference circuit, preventive diplomacy, you know, nipping the problem in the bud, but, uh, you know, strategic awareness, early warning, you know, moving early, crisis management, all of the things that you probably are teaching at staff college these days, but are rarely practiced uh, uh, in, in actual situations. It was a great example of that, but because it was a war that never broke out, people are not aware of it in the way that war are that the, the, the do broke, break out. But again, what Robertson did is he was willing to take risks. He went out on a limb. Basically, the great leader operates on a traffic light system. You know, most people wait to green before they act. Uh, in other words, they want to make sure that everything's okay. There are no risks. You know, if they cross the road, no car is going to hit them. The great leader basically goes ahead as long as he or she doesn't see a red signal. In other words, they don't wait for green. You know, they're happy to go on amber as long as nobody is poking a red symbol at them and telling them to stop. Um, they'll continue, and that's because they know something that it's much harder to stop somebody doing something than to authorize somebody doing something. You know, if you wait, you know, for everybody to authorize a, a, an action before you do it. You know, if you go to you know around your organization and say to everybody, "Tick my box." before I even do this, uh, uh, it's never going to happen. Or by, by the time you get all of those ticks in the box, it's going to be too late or the action is not required any longer. So leadership is a little bit about, you know, a, a brazen sort of cheek, if you like, of saying, well, I don't see a, a red light. So as far as I don't see a red light, as far as I'm concerned, amber is green uh, and I'm going to go ahead. Uh, and now, you know, do you dare stop me once I'm, I'm involved in something which is high profile uh, and where clearly people can see that you're trying to do something uh, 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 positive? So, yeah, calculated risks, but risks are all the same. You know, um, Nathan Cummings, one of these American uh, you know, wisecrackers, used to say, you know, nothing will ever be achieved if all possible objections must first be uh, overcome. And uh, I think that's on the desk of, of every inspirational leader. There are some really interesting parallels with our world there. In a previous podcast episode, the professional head of our army speaks about the need for our leaders to take risks in the future. And equally, our new leadership doctrine discusses Ira Shelliff's concept of intelligent disobedience, which I'm sure you'll be aware of. So plenty of synergy there. I've just got one eye on the clock here, and we're almost out of time, Jamie. Uh, but I've got time for one last question. And now, you mentioned it earlier, and noting the, the recent withdrawal of NATO troops from Afghanistan under the ISAF banner, it would be remiss of us not to, to talk about the, that original Article 5 declaration that led to the combat operations in Afghanistan that so, so many of our, our listeners will have been involved in following the 9-11 attacks in New York. Um, what were the leadership challenges during that 2001-2002 crisis management period and, and how did you support the Secretary General during that time? 
Well, yes. I, I mean, on Article 5, um, it, it was good and bad at the same time, which a lot of things can often be in life. You know, what sometimes something which is good uh, at the moment uh, and is an enormous public relations boost uh, then can haunt you for many years uh, thereafter. So you have to not just weigh the short-term, you know, advantage, uh, but you have to think a little bit of the long-term consequences. And unfortunately, in the world of politics, everybody is short-term focused, immediate impact, immediate jump in the opinion polls, you know, the next election, uh, and very few people really sit down and seriously weigh the long-term uh, implications. That's for their successors. They're going to be out of office. You know, they'll get the uh, the credit for the short-term decision, and others will take the blame uh, for the longer-term failure. And I think Article 5 uh, on September the 12th, the day after uh, the World Trade Center uh, attack on 9-11, is an example of that. Um, we, we NATO sort of rushed into declare Article 5 because uh, it was a way of showing solidarity with the United States. It was a way of putting NATO into the frame. You know, NATO hadn't done with, dealt with terrorism before. NATO wasn't basically invented to deal with an attack on the United States. It wasn't about European assistance to America. It was, of course, American assistance vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union uh, in uh, uh, Europe. Everybody, you know, felt this enormous sympathy with the Americans. And, and Article 5 seemed to be a dramatic way of showing that. But nobody sat down or thought about what the consequences would be. Number one, that the Americans literally rejected it. Uh, uh, the, the United States at the time said, George, so George Robinson, we're grateful to have this, George. It's, it's a nice political uh, gesture, but we don't want NATO to actually do anything. Um, uh, you know, we're going to go to Afghanistan by ourselves. Uh, I was at a meeting at NATO a few days afterwards with Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy Secretary of State, because Rumsfeld, who died a few weeks ago, <laughs> had stayed uh, back in Washington. And Wolfowitz said, don't call us, we'll call you. You know, the Allies are going to slow us down. Uh, you know, we, we need to act fast to bring down the Taliban regime. We're going to do it by ourselves. Uh, you know, cost Kosovo had given the Americans, I have to tell you, frankly, Ben, a bit of a sort of war by committee sense about NATO uh, 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 and a sense that, you know, by the time we get everybody on board, um, you know, the Taliban will have disappeared uh, and uh, we'll have trouble uh, finding them. So we're going to. And so uh, NATO was in an embarrassing position uh, the months after declaring Article 5 because the journalists were saying, well, when are you going to Afghanistan? Surely, you know, you've declared Article 5. There must be some follow-up, you know, some consequence, uh, some action. Uh, and eventually, Nick Burns, who was the NATO, uh, US NATO ambassador, had to convince the Pentagon to allow NATO to do some highly symbolic things just to show that it was in the game, like send AWACS aircraft, not to Afghanistan, Ben, but to Salt Lake City uh, 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 in the Western US to, uh, to safeguard which was not necessary, the Winter Olympics that were taking place at the time, or to put extra soldiers around some Italian or some German military bases, guarding them while the Americans deployed in Afghanistan. So NATO ended up paradoxically doing more inside its territory as a result of Article 5 than going to Afghanistan itself. So the lesson I draw from that, particularly, Ben, and, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to get into this today, but at a time when NATO is linking Article 5 to everything, you know, I, if you followed the NATO summit a few weeks ago, Article 5 has now been linked to space operations like disruption of satellites. Well, you know, how bad did the disruption have to be? Does it have to be destruction rather than disruption? What about the attribution? Uh, you know, what does a response mean? Do we attack other people's satellites? You know, cyber, which has been linked to Article 5 already uh, uh, since... Um, 
2014. Well, you know, how bad does a cyber attack have to be? These are uh, guys uh, that recently launched a ransomware attack against the Colonial Pipeline, uh, a fuel distribution network in the United States. Uh, uh, are we going to sort of, you know, arrest all of them or, you know, uh, go looking for them or, or, or freeze their assets or launch a counter cyber attack on them, even if they're not the Russian state? Do, you know, does Article 5 mean that NATO start a, a starts to attack private hackers and organized criminal groups? Uh, you know, uh, you know, so and we've linked it to terrorism, as we did demonstrated. Uh, uh, so whereas Article five, of course, to my mind, in the conventional area, Russia attacks Estonia, that's still crystal clear and applies. But linking it to all of these new threats without quite knowing if you've got good attribution, uh, if allies are all going to follow you uh, in responding, what kind of response, you know, a, 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 dip, a diplomatic declaration of your dissatisfaction or a retaliatory cyber attack or an escalation to a conventional attack in response to a cyber attack. There are all kinds of big, big, big issues here. And before NATO declares Article 5 uh, 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 against a non-military conventional threat, again, uh, with all of the expectations that are built up, it needs to think very, very carefully about what this means and what it's going to do. The, the, the other thing, unfortunately, uh, with Afghanistan is that because of the confusion over Article 5, uh, it was only two years after 9-11 that NATO deployed in Kabul. Now, uh, one of the people I used to work with very closely, who unfortunately died, Paddy Ashdown, you remember, who was a former British Marine and then a British politician, leader of the Lib Dems for a number of years. He was also the high representative in Bosnia. He used to say, don't waste the golden hour. And if we'd gone to Afghanistan in 2001 and not at the end of 2003 and started then political reform of the government started then talking to the Taliban because you end up always talking to your adversaries to get them to the negotiating table if we'd started then and not only in 2009 training the Afghan forces to be more professional if we'd started then talking to Pakistan um, in those days Iran was begging to talk to us but we turned them down because we were too arrogant. I bet we regret that now in terms of getting a more constructive uh, approach from uh, Iran, from China to Russia. You know, if we'd started getting the civilian organizations involved in the way that I spoke about earlier, we probably uh, would be leaving Afghanistan today with a secure pluralist democracy uh, in place to survive our departure, which is clearly not the case. So unfortunately, I think the Article 5 episode, because, 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 because it created confusion, lost us two years when we could have devised a much more successful Afghan policy at the time when our enemies uh, were much, much more willing to talk to us and do our bidding. And the people we were trying to help would have believed in us much more and supported us much more than they did uh, afterwards. So there's a lesson there, you know, short term success, lots of fireworks. But uh, if you haven't thought through the long term consequences, you may be doing something ultimately, which is counterproductive. Um, I am afraid we are out of time there, uh, but before I do let you go, we've got we've got a, enough time for our, our customary quickfire uh, question round. So, so if I may, 
Uh, who is the, the best leader you have ever worked with and why? Well, I mentioned him already, Manfred Werner, this uh, wonderful German politician, because of his ability to reinvent himself, uh, which is always uh, a good thing that even in your 60s and 70s, and I'm now in my 60s, you can still have a second career. You know, nothing is ever over uh, until you kick uh, 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 the, the, the bucket. Um, that's the first thing. Um, that life offers lots of opportunities, even at the most unexpected uh, age. Number two, because Werner clearly developed a vision for NATO at a time when many people were questioning its purpose after the Berlin Wall came down, uh, a, a new vision in Eastern Europe and intervening in the Balkans. So you can reinvent organizations uh, and give them a new energy and a new purpose as well as yourself. But thirdly, example of physical courage. Uh, Werner did uh, the leadership in, in the Balkans when he was dying of cancer. Uh, I had to go to Germany to pick him up to discharge him from hospital against the advice of his doctors to bring him back to Brussels so that with a doctor behind him and with a drip still in his neck, uh, visibly dying, uh, you know, losing weight by the minute, he could chair important NATO meetings deciding on airstrikes in, 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 in Bosnia. Werner having called for those strikes, simply wanted to be there when finally people were listening to him and NATO was acting. He died uh, 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 a little while later, but this enormous example of not just political courage, but backed up by physical courage. In other words, if you're not an example yourself of what you're talking about, uh, you know, if you don't embody it in your person, that message is never going to succeed. So he's my example of, 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 of inspirational uh, leadership. Uh, uh, he not be, he's not the only good Secretary General of NATO, but he's the one truly great Secretary General of NATO. What, what an incredible servant and, and incredible leader. Fascinating to hear. Uh, most inspirational leader from history. Uh, I'm going to pick, uh, you know, you could pick many, and I bet, you know, on your podcast, Ben, people talk about Alexander the Great uh, or, you know, Winston Churchill, all kinds of people. Um, but I'm going to pick, uh, uh, if you like, uh, three, and, and very quickly, uh, all people that I've uh, come across. Um, number one, uh, Irving von Kleist. Erwin von Kleist, think of the name you know, the great Prussian military dynasty. He was a, a junior officer who was involved in the July 1944 Stauffenberg plot uh, to try to assassinate Hitler. Yesterday, of course, was the anniversary, the 20th of July. You remember that Stauffenberg and many other members of the German military were executed uh, by the Gestapo uh, afterwards. Uh, von Kleist was imprisoned, tortured and imprisoned, but survived uh, and therefore, uh, after the war uh, was able to resume his life. He started something called the Verkunde as a businessman, where uh, every year we would meet in Munich, uh, American politicians, European politicians, think tankers, the military to discuss NATO. That has now grown into this absolute monster uh, of a conference called the Munich Security Conference that meets every year. But this was the tissue beyond NATO, the institution. This was the tissue that brought John, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, John McCain, uh, you know, together with Germans and, and Brits and French and Europeans, because under the NATO institution, there was this sense of a community that grew up together, that 
treated each other as family, that lived together, which would have rows, but which would always, always make sure that this great enterprise of transatlantic cooperation, which had not been self-evident before World War II, let's believe it. And we saw with Trump that it can easily disappear in the future that they would have tissued and brought this together. And Irving von Kleist is a great example that a private businessman, albeit somebody who was involved in the assassination attempt against Hitler, a private businessman, and there are others like Jean Monnet, you know, the founder of the European Union, with an initiative can have as great a role on in history in actually doing something which lasts. Uh, von Kleist died a few years ago, uh, uh, but uh, as you know, a conventional political leader, anybody can get into the frame and do something inspirational. Uh, the other Sue, very briefly, because I know we're almost out of time, Hermut Kohl, the great German leader of German unity, he came to NATO in 1990, a massive figure. I mean, I've never seen such a giant of a human being, both in terms of width and in terms of height. He sat down in the, 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 uh, the chair of the German ambassador and said, guys, I hear you're worried about German unification. Why? I'm going to tell you in 10 minutes why you should not be worried about German unification. We're going to have a, a European Germany. We're not going to have a German Europe. And after half an hour of listening to Cole, never ever again did we have any problems with German unification. It's the most bravura performance I've ever seen in my life from somebody who can turn the mood around. My final great hero, and you're going to be surprised to hear me say this, Ben, is Gunter Schabowski. You've probably never heard of him. East German spokesman, East German Communist Party spokesman. On the 9th of November, 1989, he convened a press conference in East Berlin at a time when there was mounting pressure to open the Berlin Wall. Schabowski, tired, frazzled, hassled, like I was as a spokesman, is asked a question by the UPI correspondent. Well, Mr. Schabowski, you're talking about new travel arrangements in East Germany. Uh, when are these going to come into effect. Schabowski's got no idea. He looks through his papers, he's hassled, he's stressed, he's tired, he's at the end of the day and he says, so what? The end of the Berlin Wall, the end of communism, the end of the Soviet Union, new role for NATO, all of the change. One little word. Schabowski is one of the great heroes of history as the most unlikely, mediocre, miserable person, an East German party functionary. He pronounces one word, sofot, that changes history forever. Uh, and that's a great example of how people make history, even when they're determined not to do so. What's the, the most enjoyable leadership position you've ever held? Well, I suppose the most enjoyable one uh, uh, was not when I was NATO spokesman, because that was often very stressful. But what my final one is the Assistant Secretary, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges, because, uh, you know, I really enjoyed doing the new NATO. I mean, I love the old NATO, Ben, you know, tanks and, you know, deterrence and, uh, in Europe, uh, uh, collective defence, that's still fundamental. But the new NATO was all about, you know, talking to private sector companies about cyber defence, you know, getting sitting down with the scientific community and learning about space and new technologies, uh, doing biometrics in order to be able to sort of, you know, detect uh, terrorists. And, you know, as you say in the military, going left of the bang, uh, going right of the bang, in terms of constructing these new sort of partnerships uh, with the most unlikely people. You know, uh, one, I never forget one day, uh, I organised a seminar for the NATO ambassadors on cyber defence, uh, and they were expecting somebody to walk in with a suit and a tie. Uh, and I invited the hacking community to come along and talk to the ambassadors. Long hair, 
big earrings, you know, uh, Jesus sandals, black shirts, you know, uh, guys who had criminal records. Uh, but uh, in half an hour, they taught the ambassadors much more about ransomware uh, and the threat than the, they, the ambassadors would have learned uh, from people like me. And I love doing this kind of new NATO where in order to do security, we had to link up with far more diverse audiences than we'd uh, ever been in touch with before. That was a, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and of course, the effort uh, uh, as we look at pandemics, you know, and climate change and all of these new issues, that, uh, you know, comprehensive approach, getting everybody around the table to work together on the basis of what they can contribute, con contribute that work, of course, has to go on. Uh, security is not defence. Amazing. And, and we couldn't agree with you more. That di diversity of thought is something we champion here at the Centre Farm Leadership. Uh, we're almost there. With hindsight, uh, what would you tell a young minute-taking Jamie Shea about leadership? Well, the only th you know, I've never been Secretary General of NATO, obviously. <laughs> uh, I've never been a political leader. So probably people would say to me, well, Jamie Shea, you've got nothing to say about leadership because, you know, we can only learn about leadership from great leaders, you know, prime ministers, the people who are cleaning that position. My lesson about leadership is you can be a leader in any position at any age, anywhere. Uh, as, as long as you've got responsibility, uh, you have to set a direction. You have to pull the strands of strategy together. I was just talking about that in terms of the comprehensive approach. You have to motivate people and get them to be enthusiastic and excited. Uh, you have to communicate what you're doing. So the great lesson of leadership is that, you know, we can all be leaders at any level, in any job, at any time of our lives. And the extent we start learning to do that early, if we do, uh, if we had a happy few, as Stondahl would have said, who really do get to the top positions, the fact we started early uh, is more of a guarantee that we'll be doing leadership successfully when we get to the position where it really does matter. Stellar advice. And, and the final question, and probably quite difficult to, uh, to give a fairly short answer is, what is NATO's biggest leadership challenge in the future? Well, that, that's a that's a good one. I mean, very briefly, I think it's this sort of management of complexity. You know, the NATO I joined was black and white. It was pretty simple. Uh, you know, somebody once asked me uh, in Brussels in a shop, well, what do you do, Mr. Shea? And I said, I wait to be attacked. Uh, and they looked at me, what? Yeah, but that was it. You know, NATO didn't really have to do anything in those days. We just had to be there uh, to counterbalance the Soviet Union. But of course, today, it's all about doing things. It's all about shaping the world and not preserving the status quo in our own interest. So I think there are four big challenges for NATO. I've mentioned one already. It still has to do defence, but it has to do security. Security is a different group of people than defence. So how do we have these sort of two communities, the defence community, more traditionally military, and the security community going on at any one time that's the first one the the second one is so much of the stuff is internal today you're more likely ben to see nato soldiers deployed on the streets of brussels guarding airports and metro stations against terrorist attacks or in italy you know building vaccination centers in the uk as well then you are seeing those people in afghanistan they're withdrawing or in iraq or or, or elsewhere so how do we balance the use of our forces for internal security tasks, you know, resilience on the home front against dealing with the traditional threats and adversaries abroad. To what extent is this a job uh, for the uh, military? The, the, the next one is uh, regional versus global. There are a number of allies, Ben, obviously looking at Russia, you know, if you're in Poland, uh, that's your major worry, uh, who want NATO to remain the classic regional alliance. But you've just seen the US President Biden in Brussels call for NATO to deal with cyber space and China as the new challenge, to go global. So how does NATO sort of stay regional, which is where many allies want it to focus, 
but go global, uh, which is where the United States wanted to be at the same time. Finally, we've just had the shock that the Americans are there, thank God, but the Americans could go away very quickly. What happens if Trump returns or a Trumpist in four years time? Uh, and therefore we need to build into NATO more European responsibility and self-reliance, both to show the Americans that we're sharing the burden equitably, which is not the case at the moment, but that also as an insurance policy, if we have a much more disconnected isolationist United States in the future. Biden is back, which is great, uh, but it gives us four years rather than another 40 years uh, to rebalance the NATO better between the American effort and the European effort. So sorry, I, I didn't give you a sort of one liner on that one, but I think there are those four big challenges which uh, are going to define the future. We are out of time there. Uh, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time. It's genuinely been incredible. And, and as I said earlier, it's, it's been like having a front, front row seat of history uh, talk with you today. So so thank you for your time. Uh, it's been it's been great. Thank you for the opportunity, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, and uh, the future is yours. So uh, good luck. Uh, it, it's good for me to define all of the challenges, knowing full well, Ben, that you're the person who's going to have to actually solve them. Good luck. I hope that you will all agree that was a captivating and candid insight into the world of NATO, and there was so much in there for us to digest. As one would expect from a man who has given almost four decades of his life to the Alliance, Jamie spoke passionately about the importance of coalitions and interoperability, highlighting the benefits of diversity and of having a unifying purpose at the strategic level. However, what I found really refreshing was his honesty about the challenges that come with working as a multinational force, but rightly highlighting the enormous political benefits far outweighing the military frictions that are inevitable. Something Jamie spoke about in length is the concept of leading without authority, and in his words, leading through diplomacy. He rightly points out that at the heart of this concept is establishing strong human connections and being able to communicate effectively with people of all backgrounds and cultures. He highlights that no one personal team will always have the right answers, and therefore harnessing this collective approach is the best way of tackling the complex problems the world is facing today. This is a fundamental point for us in the military, as any operation we deploy on in the future will more than likely be a part of a multinational force. Finally, Jamie spoke with candor about the future challenges leaders will face in an ever-changing and increasingly complex world. He highlighted the issues that NATO leaders will face, specifically in dealing with sub-threshold Article 5 activity. He spoke with first-hand experience about how in a crisis, good leaders are comfortable with making decisions with incomplete information and how they have to be comfortable with taking risk. Brilliant advice for tackling the complex problems of the future. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment, that would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and of course, follow us on our social media platforms. Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.